And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 29th, 88th day of the year. 277 days remain to the year's over with. You know, they, uh, a lot of interesting holidays uh, on this particular date. The Manatee Appreciation Day. National Mom and Pop Business Owners Day. Commemoration of Uganda. That's a Central African Republic. Knights of Columbus Founders Day. Little Red Wagon Day. And if you didn't have a little red wagon when you were a child, you were deprived. Martyrs Day in Madagascar. Mermaid Day. National Governance Professionals Day. National Lemon Chiffon Cake Day. National Smoke and Mirrors Day. Basically, we're celebrating Congress and some of the silliness they do. National Vietnam War Veterans Day. Uh, Niagara Falls Runs Dry Day. Uh, that was a day in history when Niagara Falls stopped. Payday at Forward Day. Texas Loves the Children Day. Vietnam Veterans Day. Nine million Americans fought in the Vietnam War. Unbelievable number. Now, they weren't all on the ground by any means. Whole Green Sampling Day. And World Piano Day. Now, a lot of other things happen on this particular date in history. 1430, the Ottoman Empire under Murad II captures Thessalonica from the Republic of Venice. 1461, the Battle of Teuton. Edward of York defeats Queen Margaret to become King Edward IV of England bringing a temporary stop to the Wars of the Roses. Edward IV was actually my ancestor. 1549, the city of Salvador, Bahia, the first capital of Brazil, is founded. 1632, Treaty of St. Germain is signed, returning Quebec to French control after the English had seized it in 1629. 1792, King Gustav III of uh, Sweden dies after being shot in the back at a midnight masquerade ball at Stockholm's Royal Opera 13 days before. 1806, constructions authorized at a nas great national pike, better known as the Cumberland Road, becoming the first United States federal highway. There were no gas stations in those days, so there were no uh, rush stops. 1809, King Gustav IV, Adolf of Sweden, abdicates after a coup d'etat. Also on this date in 1809, at the Diet of Porvoo, the Finland's four estates pledge allegiance to Alexander I of Russia, commencing the succession of the Grand Duchy of Finland from Sweden. 1847, Mexican-American War. U.S. forces led by General Winfield Scott take Veracruz after a siege. 1849, United Kingdom annexes the Punjab. 1857, Sepoy Mangal Pende of the 34th Regiment. Bengal Native Infantry mutinies against East India Company's rule in India and inspires the protracted Indian Rebellion of 1857, also known as the Sepoy Mutiny. 
1867, Queen Victoria gives royal assent to the British North America Act that establishes Canada on July 1st of that year. 1871, Royal Albert Hall is opened by Queen Victoria. 1879, the Anglo-Zulu War, Battle of Kambula. British forces defeat 20,000 Zulus. It's not that difficult to win when you're using rifles and they're using spears. Though the Italians were beaten by the Ethiopian army, um, who were on horseback using spears, and the Italians had uh, armored vehicles. On this day in 1882, Knights of Columbus is established. 1827, Sunbeam, 1,000 horsepower, breaks the land speed record in Daytona Beach, Florida. 1836, excuse me, 1936, the 1936 German parliamentary election and referendum seeks approval for the recent remilitarization of the Rhineland. 1841, North American Regional Broadcasting Agreement goes into effect at 3 in the morning local time. Also in 1941, World War II, British Royal Navy and Royal Australian Navy forces uh, defeat those of the Italian Regia Marina off the Peloponnesian coast of Greece in the Battle of Cape Matapan. 1942, the bombing of Lubeck in World War II is the first major success for the RAF Bomber Command against Germany in a German city. 18, uh, 1947, the Lagasse uprising against French colonial rule begins in Madagascar. 1951, Julius Nether Rosenberg convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage. 1851, hypnosis murders took place in Copenhagen. Um, this was a double murder case in connection with a failed bank robbery that happened in Denmark, March 29th. After extensive police, psychiatric, and psychological investigations and the ensuing trial proceedings, two people convicted of the murders, Pally Hydrup and Bjorn Swan Nielsen, the view of the trial court and a decision that the Danish Supreme Court affirmed that uh, Swan Nielsen had hypnotized a 28-year-old Hardrip to carry out the robbery and the murders. When Hardrip committed the robbery, he shot one of the bank's cashiers and the branch manager. Then he fled by bicycle to a nearby street and entered a building. Several eyewitnesses followed him into the building, and the police were directed to the stairwell where Hardrip uh, tried to hide. He surrendered without resistance. The uh, his co-conspirator was traced through the ownership of the bicycle. 1957, New York, Ontario, and Western Railway makes its final run. First major U.S. railroad to be abandoned in its entirety. 1961, 23rd Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is ratified, allowing residents of Washington D.C. to vote in presidential elections. 1962. Arturo Frondizi, president of Argentina, is overthrown in a military coup by Argentina's armed forces, ending an 11-and-a-half-day constitutional crisis. 1971 on this date, Lieutenant William Calley was convicted of premeditated murder and sentenced to life in prison for what happened during the My Lai Massacre. 1973, Last United States uh, combat soldiers leave South Vietnam on the state. 
Also in 73, Operation Barrel Roll, a covert American bombing campaign in Laos to stop communist infiltration of the South Vietnam ends on this date. 1974, NASA's Mariner 10 becomes the first space probe to fly by Mercury. Also, 1974, the Terracotta Army was discovered in Shanxi Province in China. These were the Terracotta figures that were buried with one of the uh, former Chinese emperors. 1982, the Canada Act of 82 receives the royal assent from Queen Elizabeth II, setting the stage for the, the Queen of Canada to proclaim the Constitution Act of 1982. 1984, the Baltimore Colts loads its possessions on the 15 Mayflower moving trucks in the early morning hours and transfers its operation to Indianapolis. They tried to sneak out before anybody could see them going. 1990, Czechoslovak Parliament's unable to reach an agreement on what to call the country after the fall of communism, sparking the so-called hyphen war. 1999, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closes above the 10,000 mark for the first time during the height of the dot-com bubble. 1999, a magnitude 6.8 earthquake in India strikes the Chamoli district in the Uttar Pradesh, killing 103. 2002, in reaction to the Passover massacre, two days before Israel launches Operation Defensive Shield against Palestinian militants, the largest military operation on the West Bank since the 1967 Six-Day War. 2004, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia joined NATO as full members. That did not make Russia happy. 2010, two suicide bombers hit the Moscow metro system at the peak of the morning rush, killed 40. 2013, at least 36 people are killed when a 16-floor building collapses at the commercial capital Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. 2014, the first same-sex marriage in England and Wales are performed. 2015, Air Canada Flight 624 skids off the runway in Halifax uh, Stanfield International Airport. That was after the arrive from Toronto shortly past midnight. All 133 passengers and five crew members on board survived, with 23 treated for minor injuries. 2016, a U.S. Air Force F-16 crashes during takeoff from the Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. And in 2017, Prime Minister Theresa May invokes Article 50 of the Treaty of the European Union, formally beginning the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the European Union. Maybe one day, they'll actually get it finished. Never can tell. All right. We've got an interesting show today. Would you believe a lot of the, this country's history has been suppressed and falsified. We're going to talk about that beginning in just a moment. Now, you may find it totally uh, outlandish, but the philosophy of this country has been if it flies in the face of convention, suppress it. If it contradicts accepted academic dogma, reject it. If it opens minds, condemn it. If it turns history upside down, make sure it never sees the light of day. And that's been the way it's been since this country was founded. It was in the late 1800s when Smithsonian Executive John Wesley Powell and his colleagues (coughs) 
decided for the good of humanity, they had best systematically destroy the vast amount of accumulated evidence proving that several Native American Indian tribes were most probably descended from ancient European visitors to the New World. In the minds of the these duplicitous psychopaths, destruction is always sanctified by some dubious pretext. Nevertheless, regardless of the blitzkrieg on truth, it's always a day for celebration when nefarious plots are foiled or exposed. Now, as we go through the material I've amassed for this show, you might feel just a bit of satisfaction. Um, because what we've put together does furnish additional proof of the deviltry of people in high places. Now, some of the history we were taught in school, and I was in school, I got my last degree 10 years ago. My first history class was probably... 50 years ago. And it's amazing looking back at the, the extraordinary lengths brainwash was a go to engender the consensus uh, that um, supports our overall agenda for control. Particularly formidable are the revelations uh, concerning the uh, the vaunted Smithsonian Institution that was legally established in 1846. Curiously, its founder, James Smithson, never visited the United States. And nobody even knows what motivated him to, to found the institution. Now, its facade gives an impression of nobility and academic prowess, and its cathedral-like architecture exudes an aura of um, established credibility. Average visitor is not inclined to guess that the carefully arranged displays and tour guide rhetoric are contrived to give them a false impression of America's past. They walk away feeling intrigued and informed and certain that what they've been told is true. Little do they suspect they've been royally deceived. Now, since its creation, the Smithsonian Institution and its 11 satellite museums have been visited by millions of people from all over the world. And it is, according to its own PR, dedicated to the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. However, you, after this show, you may question if that's true. Unfortunately, it's too bad Smithsonian's founders and Board of Regents decided to obliterate the evidence that contradicted consensual notions about America's ancient history. Reading their Machiavellian intrigue compels us to ask what our world would be without such um, egregious censorship. Where would we be if humanity had open access to the information that's been hidden away from sight? Now, it's interesting to note that some of the 
most, uh, shall we say, high-sounding undertakings have, in fact, been, uh, the results have been modified to suit the agenda that uh, the powers that be want to uh, put out before the people. Some of those crucial tales of American history are contained in the journals of Mary Weather Lewis. He was an explorer, a historian, a scientist, a soldier. But behind the the tales of frontier bluster and adventure are stories that are much more fascinating. And these tales have haunted academics and historians for decades. They're stories of lost cultures, strange monoliths, anachronistic artifacts, enigmatic races found in the shadows and cracks between America's official versions of history. In fact, even the the death of Meriwether Lewis uh, is steeped in mystery. Now, the contention that Lewis was murdered is not a new one. Rumors about murder began circulating as soon as news of his death emerged. Historical accounts, letters, and newspaper reports compiled by biographers such as Stephen Ambrose and Richard Dillon suggest that the people who knew Lewis were initially shocked, saddened, and confused about the circumstances surrounding his death. Now, he was respected by everybody who knew him as a fearless, quick-witted adventurer of powerful constitution and indefatigable will. When asked why he chose Lewis over a scientist or researcher to catalog the the adventure west, the president President Jefferson said it was impossible to find a character who was who would complete his science and uh, botany, and natural history, and mineralogy and astronomy, join the firmness and constitution and character, prudence, habits adapted to the woods, and familiarity with the uh, Indian manners and character requisite for this undertaking. All these qualifications Captain Lewis has. Now, these same qualities that made Lewis the president's first choice to lead the expedition west are the same qualities that cast doubt on reports of his deterioration and eventual suicide. And they're also, interestingly enough, the same qualities that probably got him killed. Now, with regard to Lewis's actual death, there are no eyewitnesses, and there's a list of strange circumstances that remain unaddressed and unanswered by official accounts of his so-called suicide. How did an expert marksman manage to shoot himself so ineffectively that he languished for hours <coughs> and finally managed to cut himself from head to toe with razors to finish the job? Well, the the answer, at least to my way of thinking, should be very simple. The once great wilderness explorer turned political powerhouse was murdered. But, unfortunately, history is never that simple, and the truth of history is notoriously difficult to pin down. Many historians who become lost in a sort of wilderness of their own still believe in history as written in 
feel content to piece it together from the writings and research of other academics. They offer dry, lifeless regurgitations, fallow truths uttered from deep red, high-backed leather chairs resting by a fire in New England. They're content with history as long as it's deemed academically sound and safe. Well, despite persistent criticism and opposition from official circles, a different picture of early America has begun to emerge as more and more research has been done into what actually took place. Now, the murder of Meriwether Lewis marked the inception of an academic war over how to define America that entered before the uh, Spanish conquistadors, French explorers, and British adventurers arrived in the so-called New World. And this intellectual battle has been waged for centuries now by two famous factions of scholars, the diffusionist and the independent inventionalist. To this day, the diffusionists are spoken of with derision in mainstream academic circles as they dig into the past with the same courage that characterized Lewis and Clark. And like Lewis, these rogue scholars continue to unearth evidence that America was visited long before Columbus by explorers coming both, uh, crossing both the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. And they continue to unearth evidence of rich, vibrant, highly evolved cultures that existed in ancient America. This growing volume of archaeological evidence stands in clear contradiction to many key assumptions held by uh, America's founders and their scholarly counterparts. Now, keep in mind, history was a, a area of great interest for me growing up, and, in, uh, and I've read a book a day since I could old enough to carry one. And nowhere did I find in mainstream history writings anything about the fact that there was a Roman colony here. This wasn't mentioned. Because... We all know at the time of uh, ancient Rome, they didn't have the ability to cross the Atlantic. Now, the inventionist perspective remains the standard among archaeologists, suggests that the natives of the American continent are descended from Ice Age relatives who crossed that mythical land bridge in the Bering Strait, and developed in complete isolation until they were discovered by the Spanish, French, and British explorers during the late 15th century. In the days of America, early days of America, that is, it was the federal government and its proponents who were most interested in characterizing the continent as an untrammeled paradise populated by savages. Well, there was another practical reason for the taking the position that uh, this country was an untrammeled paradise. See, the Pope had decided, on behalf of God, of course, um, how countries, colonizing countries, could get other lands. And that was if there wasn't a Christian uh, religion established. So this set of assumptions gave early explorers and uh, exploiters of the American continent the justification they needed to 
co-op and pillage its resources, wage war on the Native Americans and occupy its lands with impunity. It was the perspective of American government officials that uh, as they tamed America's terrain and battled its people for control of the resources that would fuel the creation of um, the new world, they were in effect doing God's work. Also, the perspective was later adopted by the uh, Smithsonian, which more than any other organization has defined our understanding of America's origins. Now, since its inception in the 1800s, Smithsonian joined the powers in Washington in vigorously promoting the idea that America was an untouched landscape before European attempts to claim it. Simply put, Smithsonian's initial administrators uh, followed the direction only chosen by America's early leaders, supported by their own inherited cultural and scholarly uh, myopia. Paradoxically, it was an agent of the Smithsonian, uh, Matthew Sterling, who championed one of the first um, contentious examples of cultural diffusion when he began investigating into the mysterious Olmecs and the origin of Maya culture and what's now the southern reaches of Mexico. Now, the Olmec people are considered by some historians to be the mother culture of the Mayas and the Aztecs and the Incas. Pre-Columbian people, they inhabited the lowlands of south-central Mexico in a region now occupied by the states of Veracruz and Tabasco. The Olmecs were prominent from about 1200 B.C. to about 400 B.C. That's according to which accounts you read. They were the first Mesoamerican civilization and planted seeds of other civilizations throughout the region. They're credited with being the first Mesoamerican culture to practice ritual blood sacrifice and play the Mesoamerican ball game, uh, practices that became the hallmark of several subsequent tribes and civilizations. And from the steamy jungles of Mexico's southern Gulf Coast to the modern countries of Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, Costa Rica, and El Salvador, the Olmecs built uh, large settlements, established trade routes, and developed uh, religious iconography and rituals. The rise of the Olmec civilization was driven largely by the region's ecology, which included uh, well-watered alluvial soil and a network of rivers that provided the Olmecs with a useful transportation system. The region where this culture took root is similar to other cultural spawning grounds such as the Nile and the Indus and the Yellow River Valleys. This rich environment fostered a dense population and the rise of an elite culture that exploited the region's stores of obsidian and jade, for example, to create works of art that have frankly defined the Olmec culture. Exploration of this culture is was sparked by artifacts circulating through the pre-Columbian art market in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. To this day, Olmec artwork is considered among ancient America's most marvelous achievements. Now, archaeologists consider San Lorenzo the earliest of the major Olmec ceremonial centers. Located in the open country around the Rio Chiquito and southern Veracruz, it rested on a massive sculpted uh, salt plateau with a series of man-made ravines constructed on three of its four sides. And this structure represented the earliest ball court in Mesoamerica, complete with a system of carved stone drains. Richard Deal, professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama, has conducted archaeological investigations all over Mexico and 
has written the essential guide to the Almex. And he literally echoes and ciphers an Almex scholar at Mexico's National Autonomous University. And he says, uh, San Lorenzo shows clear evidence of class structure. There are probably a number of different populations forming groups that rose and fell over time and shifted alliances. And he said he didn't think there was any political integration. And while they offered admiration for their drains and class structure, he makes very little mention of the Olmec's dramatic end, which has been explained away by theories of an internal uprising and ecological disaster, even a hostile invasion. When San Lorenzo was discovered, almost uh, all its large sculptures were defaced, buried, or destroyed. And like Meriwether Lewis, the Olmec people met a mysterious end that is yet to be explained. Now, some of the carved works at San Lorenzo include the legendary massive Olmec head sculptures that weigh as much as 40 tons and stand nearly three meters high. These massive heads have puzzled archaeologists since their discovery, showing characteristics that led many to assert that their African in origin were created by people of African descent. Now, first discovered by plantation workers, the colossal sculptures were reported in the 1869 bulletin of the Mexican Geographical Statistical Society. They said it was a magnificent sculpture that most amazingly represents a Ethiopian. Now, this report included a drawing clearly outlining the stone head's African features. And what appears to be a bit of honest investigative reporting was too controversial to be taken seriously at the time, and the very idea of Africans residing in Mexico was quickly and largely forgotten. Decades later, Smithsonian curator Matthew Sterling, fascinated by dusty tomes pulled from the basement of the museum, began a personal exploration into the history of the Olmex. At the time, Sterling's findings were considered blasphemous by an academic community dedicated to the study of Mayan culture. Under Sterling's invest- until Sterling's investigations in the late 1930s and early 40s, Mayan culture was considered the seed of all culture in Mesoamerica. Work by Archaeologists such as uh, Philip Drucker and Robert Herzer, who used modern methods such as carbon dating to determine the age of Olmec artifacts, uh, later vindicated Sterling in his views. And though not widely acknowledged, Sterling's discoveries, publications, and perseverance in defending them would undermine a position long held by his own organization. Kathy O'Halloran, uh, author of Indigenous People's History, says... Uh, the outcome of the Olmec Maya controversy is noted in the intellectual community as a shining example of the need for open minds. Above all, it shows how major new archaeological discoveries can be made even in the mid-20th century and how the intellectual perseverance of a minority viewpoint in the archaeological community can lead to eventual acceptance, even after it was initially rejected. Well, after years of research, in 1938, Sterling traveled to the southwestern Mexican lowland, armed with well-prepared journals and funds from the National Geographic Society. He went with a very simple, single goal, uncover the mystery of a discarded ancient people. His first stop was uh, Trace Zapotes, an ancient Olmec city on the western edge of the uh, Tuxlas Mountains. Trace Sepultis is best known for an impressive garden of carved stones and altars and colossal stone heads, all of which were discovered at least 100 miles away from the nearest source of the stone from which they were carved. 
Among the monuments at Tres Sepultis was Stella C. Freestanding stone monument carved on basalt. The Stella's carved with an undecipherable script that surrounds a jaguar sitting on a throne. On the opposite side of the Stella is the second oldest Mesoamerican long count calendar date ever to have been unearthed. The calendar's a non-repeating vigesimal based on the factors of 20 numerical system apparently used by several Mesoamerican cultures, most notably the Mayans. He also discovered an imposing 14-foot-high stella with carvings that showed an encounter between two tall men, both dressed in elaborate robes and wearing elegant shoes with turned-up toes. Erosion, or perhaps mutilation, had defaced one of the figures. The other was intact. And it so obviously depicted a Caucasian male with a high-bridged nose and a long flowing beard that the archaeologist christened Uncle Sam. These monuments, whether they resemble bearded Caucasians or African kings, have amazed and bewildered experts and lay people for generations. Author Graham Hancock, an acclaimed alternative historian, intrigued by the anomalies associated with the Almecs, traveled to the ruins at La Venta, a civic and ceremonial center, home to one of the oldest pyramids in Mesoamerica. Hancock, dumbfounded at the intense complexity of the structures, had a good bit to say about him. He said, in the center of the park, like some magic talisman, stood an enormous gray boulder, almost 10 feet tall, carved in the shape of a helmeted African head. And this was the first mystery of the Olmecs, a monumental piece of sculpture more than 2,000 years old. Unmistakably, it was the head of an African man wearing a close-fitting helmet with a long chin strap. Plugs pierced the lobes of the ears, and the entire face was concentrated above thick, down-curving lips. be impossible for a sculptor to invent all the different um, combined characteristics of an authentic racial type. The portrayal of an authentic combination of racial characteristics implied strongly a human model had been used. Hancock said, I walked around the Great Head a couple of times. It was 22 feet in circumference, weighed 19.8 tons, stood almost 8 feet tall, had been carved out of solid basalt, and displayed clearly an authentic combination of racial characteristics. He said, my own view is that the Olmec heads present us with physiologically accurate images of real individuals. Charismatic and powerful African men whose presence in Central America 3,000 years ago has yet to be explained by scholars. So what does Smithsonian do in order to avoid having to explain them? They ignore them. Hancock personally studied the same Stella that Sterling had 60 years before. And two things stood out to Hancock. He said the encounter scene is portrayed must for some reason have been of immense importance to the Olmecs. Hence the grandeur of the Stella itself and the construction of the remarkable stockade of columns built to maintain it. And as was the case with the African heads, it was obvious that the face of the bearded Caucasian man could only have been sculpted from a human model. One was carved in low relief on a heavy and roughly circular slab of stone about three feet in diameter. Dressed in what looked like tight-fitted leggings, his features were those of an Anglo-Saxon. Had a full pointed beard and wore a curious floppy cap on his head. And around his slim waist was tied a flamboyant sash. Now these Caucasian figures carved in the stones were uncovered from exactly the same strata as these huge Olmec heads. 
Dunlop bent the figures and their attire resembled reliefs in Abydos, Egypt that depict the Battle of Kaddish. Hittite charioteers shown in the reliefs all have long, elaborate robes and shoes with turned-up toes. Hancock suggests it's by no means impossible that these great works preserve the images of people from a vanished civilization which embrace several ethnic groups. Strangely, despite the best efforts of archaeologists, not a single solitary sign of anything that could be described as the developmental phase of Olmec society has ever been unearthed anywhere in Mexico. These amazing artists appear to have literally come out of nowhere. Now, evidence suggests that rather than develop slowly, the Olmec civilization emerged all at once and fully formed. The transition period from primitive to advanced society appears to have been so short that it baffles modern uh, anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians. Technical skills that should have taken hundreds or even thousands of years to evolve were brought into use almost overnight and with no apparent antecedents whatsoever. A vivid picture at the end of the Olmec civilization is uh, found in the ancient city of Monte Alban. The city stands on a vast, artificially flattened hilltop overlooking Oaxaca and consists of a huge rectangular area enclosed by groups of pyramids and other buildings that are laid out in precise geometric relationships to one another. Hancock visited that site and recorded what he discovered. He said, I made my way first to the extreme southwest corner of the, the Monte Alban site. There, stacked loosely against the side of a low pyramid, were the objects I came all this way to see, several dozen engraved stella depicting Africans and Caucasians, equal in life and equal in death. In Monte Alban, though, there seemed to have been carved in stone a record of the downfall of these masterful men. Didn't look as if this could not have, if this could have been the work of the same people, who made Malventa um, sculptures. The standard of craftsmanship was far too low for that. Whoever they were, these artists had attempted to portray the same subjects I saw at Malventa. There, the sculptures had reflected strength and power and vitality. At Monte Alban, the remarkable strangers were corpses. All were naked, most were castrated, and some were curled up in fetal positions as though to avoid showers of blows. Others just lay sprawled on their backs. At an annual conference of the Institute for the Study of American Cultures, Mike Zhu, a professor of modern languages and literature at uh, Texas Christian University, suggests the possibility to direct Chinese influence on the Olmecs. He said, carved stone blades found in Guatemala dating from about 1100 B.C. are distinctly Chinese in pattern and share uncanny resemblances to glyphs from the Shang Dynasty. The problem is not whether Asians eat Mesoamerican before Columbus. The problem is, when did they arrive and what did they do? Any proposal that smacks of diffusionism in today's academic climate is immediately dismissed as irresponsible at best and malevolent at worst. Here are all these American scholars speaking European languages, and they dare to say, no, there was never any diffusion, and yes, all Western Hemisphere cultures are indigenous. Well, in his most recent work, the Olmecs, uh, America's First Civilization, Richard Deal wrote more than 200 pages and spent only a brief part of that discussion on the subject of diffusionism. He said the origin of Olmec culture have intrigued scholars and lay people since the Zapotis colossal head, uh, genetic stone human head with African features, was discovered in Veracruz 140 years ago. And since that time, Olmec culture and art have been attributed to 
seafaring Africans, Egyptians, Nubians, Phoenicians, Atlanteans, Japanese, Chinese, other ancient wanderers. As often happens, the truth is infinitely more logical, if less romantic. The Olmecs were Native Americans who created a unique culture in southeastern Mexico's Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Archaeologists now trace Olmec origins back to pre-Olmec cultures in the region. There's no credible evidence for major intrusions from the outside. Furthermore, not a single bona fide artifact of old world origins has uh, ever appeared in an Olmec archaeological site, for that matter, anywhere in Mesoamerica. So with that one entry, Deal dismisses all theories and evidence of transoceanic contact. It is important to note how difficult it is to determine whether a bona fide old world artifact uh, would be, since old world and new world artifacts are often indistinguishable. Also, he offered no further information on the cultures from which the Olmecs are supposedly derived. For the Olmec to actually be, actually be African, not just look like them, they would certainly have to come to the Isthmus uh, via ship. But such voyages are dismissed immediately by most scholars, and Olmecs have simply been characterized as locals. While excavating at the Mexican state of Veracruz in 2006, archaeologist uh, Maria del Carmen Rodriguez discovered a stone slab with 3,000-year-old writing previously unknown to scholars. The slab was covered in carved symbols that appeared to be those of a complex writing system. In discussing it, she wrote, uh, finding a heretofore unknown writing system is rare. One of the last major ones to come to light, according to scholars, was the Indus Valley script, recognized from excavations in 1924. Now scholars are tantalized by a message in stone and a script unlike any other in the text they can't read. And they're excited by the prospect of finding more of this writing and eventually deciphering it to crack open a window on one of the most enigmatic ancient civilizations. The inscriptions on the Mexican stone with 28 distinct signs, some of which are uh, repeated for a total of 62, has been tentatively dated to about 900 B.C., maybe even earlier. There's 400 or more years before writing was known to have existed in Mesoamerica, the region from Central America, Mexico through which uh, through much of Central America, and by extension, anywhere in the hemisphere. Previously, no script had been associated unambiguously with the Olmec culture, which flourished along the Gulf of Mexico and Veracruz and Tabasco well before the Zapotec and Maya people rose to prominence elsewhere in the region. And until now, the Olmec were known mainly for the colossal stone heads they sculpted and displayed as monumental build at monument. One more time. And monumental buildings in their ruling cities. Now, several paired sequences of signs have prompted speculation that the text may contain couplets of poetry. Experts who examined the symbols on the stone slab said they'd need many more examples before they could hope to decipher and read what was written. They said it appeared the symbols in the inscription were unrelated to later Mesoamerican scripts, suggesting his Olmec writing might have been practiced for only a few uh, generations and may never have been spread to the surrounding cultures. Beyond advanced linguistic and literary systems, the Olmecs also seem to have possessed advanced knowledge of mathematics and navigation. Astronaut Gordon Cooper became interested in the Olmecs during his final days with uh, NASA. During a treasure hunting expedition in Mexico, he encountered Olmec ruins, which led to a startling discovery. 
He wrote, uh, one day accompanied by a National Geographic photographer who landed in a small plane on an island in the Gulf of Mexico. Local residents pointed out the pyramid-shaped mounds where we found ruins and artifacts and bones. On the examinations back in Texas, the artifacts were determined to be 5,000 years old. When we learned of the age of the artifacts, we realized what we'd found had nothing to do with 17th century Spain. I contacted the Mexican government was put in touch with the head of the National Archaeology Department, Pablo Bush Romero, and together with Mexican archaeologists, the two returned to the site. And according to Cooper, after some additional excavation, the age of the ruins was confirmed, 3000 B.C. Compared with other advanced civilizations, relatively little was known about the Olmecs. Engineers, farmers, artisans, and traders, the Olmecs had a remarkable civilization but it's still not known where they originated. Among the findings that intrigued uh, Cooper most were celestial navigation symbols and formulas that when translated turned out to be mathematical formulas used to this day for navigation and accurate drawings of constellations, some of which wouldn't be officially discovered until the age of modern telescopes. So why would they have celestial navigation signs if they weren't navigating celestially? And then he said, if somebody helped the Olmecs with this knowledge, from where did they get it? The enigmas, enigmas left behind by the Olmecs are staggering. Stark contrast to er, nearly every assumption held by pre-Columbian cultures, much evidence suggests that people from distant civilizations arrived on the continent discovered by explorers such as Lewis centuries before. Can a similar influence be found in North America? And if so, did it still exist during the journey made by Lewis and Clark? Well, that raises quite a number of questions that still haven't been answered. You know, Meriwether Lewis wasn't the first adventurer to suffer a dark fate while discovering secrets on the American continent. 1508, 16 years after Columbus's first voyage, Juan Ponce de Leon discovered gold on the island of Puerto Rico. Within a short period of time, the people of the island paradise were extinct. Many died in battle defending their homeland. Others succumbed to diseases incurred during their enslavement by foreign invaders who came to exploit riches, uh, rich stores of gold ore and other precious resources. Mike Lewis's discoveries made Ponce de Leon an instant celebrity and one of the richest men in the New World. Uh, boasting a slightly less glorious early career than Louis de Leon had begun his naval career as a pirate for hire, attacking ships belonging to the Moors. This experience earned him a chance to undertake a journey to the Americas at the time that uh, Christopher Columbus was making his second trip to the Americas, to the West Indies, as part of a costly excursion financed by King and Queen of Spain. De Leon sailed from the, from the port of Cadiz and arrived on a Caribbean island dubbed Hispaniola, composing the island that's now host of the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and that's where he began his own series of explorations. And like Lewis, de Leon was a fierce adventurer who reveled in the chance to serve his superiors by exploring the American continent in search of riches. His arrival in Hispaniola marks the explorer's first connection with the region alleged to host the, spa uh, the Fountain of Youth. Perhaps it was here that de Leon first heard of the fabled well. Or maybe he'd already been exposed to this legend during his days of looting Moorish ships. The day preserved at Alamiado 
is the oldest known story that mentioned the mythical fountain. It's a poem written by the Muslims in encoded language. The poem, the poem is called uh, Alexander the Two-Horned in, in Arabic. Tells the story of Alexander the Great going to the island of darkness to find a fountain of youth. It is possible, and some have speculated, that Leon was aware of these tales through his exploration of Moors and Muslim customs. The fountain's also mentioned as part of the apocryphal letter of Prester John that appeared in 1165 in Europe. 300 years later, in a world unlike anything they could have imagined, the Spanish explorers may have been enticed by some of the legends told by uh, island natives. The exuberance they enjoyed after the discovery of new lands could have easily encouraged De Leon to believe that if anybody could find this legendary fountain, it'd be him. After drifting past the Bahamas and the Florida Keys, he made landfall on the North American mainland, which he mistook initially for an island. Thinking he was still in the Caribbean, he dropped anchor and went ashore somewhere north of what would become the city of St. Augustine. 1514, he returned to Spain to report his find findings. He asserted the Fountain of Youth was somewhere on those lush isles, and the king and queen were convinced that De Leon could find it. On his next excursion, he sailed with 200 men and enough supplies to establish a colony. Landed on the west coast of Florida near what uh, would become Charlotte Harbor and was attacked by Calusa natives. Poison there. Wounded De Leon, and most of the Spanish soldiers and colonists were killed. Like Lewis, De Leon's appetite for adventure and exploration led to his untimely death. Few survivors of um, this skirmish at Charlotte Harbor returned to Cuba where De Leon died from his wounds a month later. Coincidentally, in his initial discovery and in his last battle, the De Leon had uh, got within a short distance of lush areas of deep freshwater sources in Florida. One is near the city of San Augustine and another uh, Zephyrils. Side of his last battle with natives was a short distance away from the warm mineral springs in Northport, Florida. These uh, two massive springs run 2,000 feet deep. And I must deal for just a moment with the peanut gallery. Well, as you might guess, despite the gruesome scuffle and the death of De Leon, the search for the fountain continued. Spanish conqueror and explorer. Penfilo de Navarrez attempted an expedition from Cuba that was uh, caught in a hurricane. His fleet was destroyed and the survivors washed ashore near modern-day Tampa Bay. Only a man by the name of Cabeza de Vaca and 30 companions survived. Their intention was to reach a Spanish settlement in Mexico and regroup there, but after a battle with hostile natives, they built a raft and worked their way into southwestern Texas. They traveled along the uh, Colorado River, and the Baca and the survivors of this ill-fated expedition came to the first Europeans to see a, a bison or American buffalo. The Baca returned to Spain nine years later and published his story. It was, a, frankly, a bestseller. And then it are references to encounters with giants, which coincidentally was a recurring theme in Native American folklore. According to Devaca's tale, when we attempted to cross the large lake, we came under heavy attack from many giant Indians concealed behind trees. Some of our men were wounded in this conflict, for which the, the good armor they wore was of no avail. Indians uh, we'd so far seen were all archers. 
They go naked or larger body and appear at a distance like giants. They are of admirable proportions, very spare and of great activity and strength. The bows they use are as thick as the arm of eleven or twelve palms in length, which they discharge at two hundred paces with so great precision they miss nothing. Well, in 1539, Hernando de Soto sailed nine ships into Tampa Bay. As he ventured inland, they encountered the friendly Temecuans, customary for the explorers to ensure their safety by holding captive the tribal chiefs, and this was done diplomatically, as you might guess, as an invitation. After some reluctance, the chiefs did agree to become de Soto's guest. When the natives realized becoming guests meant being turned into slaves, the local tribes led by Chief Kapafi of the Appalachian sparked an uprising. After weeks of warfare, the chief was finally captured in a battle near the what become uh, Tallahassee, and he was described as a man of monstrous proportions. Some of these legends of giants and the search of the Fountain of Youth are being cast in new light thanks to the work of researcher Dwayne McCullough. He found uh, different rock islands within Key Largo that contained springs of a unique in composition thanks to exposure to abundant amounts of the nutritious uh, sea salts. These concentrations are attributed to tidal pressure and the seasonal freshwater flushing from the Everglades, collecting and mixing within the aquatic pathways that run through the cracks in the coral bedrock of the upper Florida Keys. His research suggests that these rare sea salts contain traces of gold, which are is generally greatly diluted in seawater. Well, because gold could have been con- concentrated as a salt by the evaporation of seawater nearby Florida Bay, and further collected as a heavy metal at the bottom of other basin-like lagoons, it could have been mixed into the local spring waters of the area. And this discovery, together with a new understanding of the health benefits of dietary gold salts and they can improve cell memory, shed new light on the old legends of waters and impart immortality, their way melt, they may well be a basis of fact to it. Well, on that note, we go to the end of today's show. Tomorrow we'll be talking more about the suppressed history of America. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.